This is the World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hello and welcome to this episode of the World of Work podcast. Um, super exciting today. We've got Dr. Richard McKinnon back. We've done some excellent episodes with him in the past and we've got another one lined up today. We're going to be talking about loneliness. Uh, and specifically, we're going to be talking a little bit about loneliness at work. We're going to be exploring to some extent what it is, why it matters, how it affects us, and think a little bit about maybe what some of the things are that we can do about it. So what's some of the action we can take um, to support the, the increase in connection and belonging and, and reduce the loneliness that, that perhaps we or others feel. Um, before we jump into all of that, uh, Richard, could you say hi and reintroduce yourself to the audience? Hello. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, I obviously didn't destroy my reputation the last time, so uh, it's great to be back. Um, so I'm uh, Richard McKinnon. I'm a chartered psychologist and coach. I run a, a business called Work Life Psych, and I've been doing what I do for about, well, for over 22 years now, working as a practitioner psychologist. Um, and, I, and I focus on three broad areas, actually, and I have for the last nearly 10 years, um, people's well-being at work, their um productivity at work and their interpersonal effectiveness at work. And this topic of loneliness really uh, can impinge on the three of those. And that's one of the reasons it's particularly of interest to me and has been for a while. Um, I, I spend about half of my time coaching individuals, the rest of my time running training programs and uh, longer development programs. And in all of these contexts, uh, loneliness has come up. Um, not just over the last few years of the pandemic, obviously that's brought it to the fore, but it's been something that people have brought up uh, regularly. So it's not that unusual uh, an experience. Yeah, fabulous. Thank you. Um, it's something that in the broader media, I read about a lot as a growing trend. And I'm, I'm going to talk about that because I, I think there's something interesting about that in a minute. Um just before we do that, though, we're recording this in early May, uh, I guess mid-May 2023, the 15th of May. And and we know we've got a few sort of things going on in the minute where people are releasing resources to support with this. I thought we'd just get straight out there that you've got a lovely uh, PDF that people can download. Maybe we can share that now, details of where they mm -hmm. can grab that. Um, would you I, share our website? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you can find all the resources we'll talk about in this episode on the website at worklifepsych.com slash connect and thrive. And that's the name we've given to the entire campaign, actually, Connect and Thrive, because that's what it's about. Uh, interpersonal social connection to enable our well-being and our performance. Yeah, lovely. That, that's sort of a, the antithesis to some extent of loneliness is that ability mm. to connect and thrive through that. Um, which, which I think is a lovely phrase. Um, so I guess in terms of framing this, I, I want to start by exploring this sense that perhaps loneliness is increasing or that, that there's, um, you know, some people talk about an epidemic. And I, I've got a, a couple things that I want to just chuck out there. I guess the first thing is, I'm sure you'll have seen um, the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has, has called out a few times the, the importance of loneliness and isolation as a public health issue. And in, in some of the work that, that he's done and the things that he's called out and, and his drive to look for support for this, he said that it should be treated with the same urgency as things like obesity, um, drug abuse. Uh, he says it's surging. He says that you know more than half of the people in the US experience loneliness on, on a fairly regular basis. And one of the things that he says that, that um, people have anchored onto a little bit is he said that in their view, the sort of research view they have, it says that loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 
Now, with my sort of like prodding stuff hat on, I, I've delved into that and looked a little bit. And, and it seems like there's a little bit of a critique of the ability to pinpoint that number down. But a lot of the stuff that, that I've seen says there's a huge amount of evidence showing individuals who report feelings of loneliness are more likely to have health problems later in life. It says there's a credible theory and explanations of biological mechanisms whereby isolation can set off unconscious survival, uh, sorry, unconscious uh, surveillance for social threats, um, produce cognitive biases, reduce sleep, affect hormones. There's very likely a causal link, um, though it's hard to pin down this, this 15 cigarettes a day comparison. Um, but the consensus seems to be that even if we can't map it to, say, 15 cigarettes a day, that this is a really important factor that's affecting a lot of people's lives. Could, could I just ask you to sort of reflect on some of that as a start for today? Absolutely. Well, let, let me start by saying uh, I think the statistics here in the UK would say that the prevalence of loneliness is broadly comparable. You know, it's incredibly common. And this is an important message that when people feel loneliness, uh, it can feel like uh, they're the only person that is experiencing it. And of course, feelings of shame and guilt can come with that as well. So there's a taboo associated with discussing our experience of loneliness. The mechanisms aren't that clear. And I would, I would never bring it down to a prediction of, of that specificity, but I think that's a powerful message as well. When you want to get it front and center, you have to say, look, this is a lot like this. When you do this, this is likely to happen. And, you know, I would agree with everything you've said there about uh, outcomes of ongoing loneliness. And, and it, you know, loneliness can have and does have over a period of time a negative impact on our immune system. Social connection is so core to who we are as people. Um, we've evolved as social creatures that it, it should be no surprise that it does us harm when we are isolated from others, when we don't want to be. And of course, what this boils down to is not aloneness. It's not um, being the only person in your immediate environment. It's not having your desired level of social connection met. And we all differ in that regard. And this is something we talk about a lot in terms of our need for interaction and, and uh, sociability. But even if we have a much lower need for that, and that's not being met, we're going to feel loneliness. Um, this, I mean, I, I think this is a, a really nice way of looking at it. My, my co-author of the guide that we've put together is Dr. Sarah Wright from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. And um, in a recent interview I did with her, she described it as, you know, this is, um, this is like a warning light. Loneliness is an alert to do something about the lack of social connection. And this is possibly one way of helping us understand why the emotions and the thoughts and the behavioral responses are so strong um, and can have such a negative impact. And that is also why if we don't do anything to change our situation, we then start to experience those significant negative health outcomes. So it's a really complex thing because on the one hand, people with uh, chronic uh, medical conditions can report feelings of isolation and loneliness and lack of social connection. And it can work in the other way around. I would come at it from a very pragmatic view, which is one, let's talk about loneliness as a thing that is part of the human experience. And two, let's equip people with simple skills that we know work to enable them to make more connection if that's what they want. And the third, and it's a huge ask, <laughs> um, let's ramp it up 
in terms of what organizations are focusing on. Let's get it on the agenda alongside lots of other things because it it is relevant to the workplace. Um, it has an impact on our behavior at work, our performance at work. So these are things that are uh, not just nice to have, they are essential for cooperation, collaboration, and performance in the workplace. Yeah, as you're speaking there, it really seems to me that a lot of what we're speaking about really is a foundational aspect of a lot of human well-being. You know, you, you spoke there about the fact that we are predominantly social beings and, and that's something we touch on a lot. Um, in an episode of A Life Scientific, which is a BBC Radio 4 program, I, I listened to an interview with um, a psychoanalyst called Peter Fonge, who's, um, I think, a bit of an institution in that space. And one of the sound bites that stuck out to me uh, in him speaking is he says, that the human need to be understood as at the core of our species. I mean, he talks about the power of sort of connection and understanding, and he tells a really important story about his own journey through life. And he was, um, you know, very depressed as a young uh, individual. He was a, a refugee with little English as a language and, and um, you know, had, had been uh, moved to the UK as a refugee and, and was going through this this significant depression. And And he said, basically, he didn't feel that he could start to get better and make any improvement until he got that sense of understanding and connection with each uh, with with uh, uh, with others and for him that, that understanding and connection was the unlocking point at which he could start to tackle some of mm -hmm. his actual depression and it it, it really that, that sort of spoke to me about the power of loneliness um so so i i guess i quite like that story um if i if i step back a little bit one of the things that i think is interesting in our conversation is that it feels like we're, we're talking a little bit about what feels like a societal issue. It feels like a growing trend and, and there's lots of data out there showing, you know, increases in loneliness. I, I've got one here from um, the Survey Center on American Life that, that lists some comparative data between 1990 and, and 2021. Um, it says the, the percentage of Americans reporting having um, less than three close friends in 1990 was 16% said that. 2021, 32% of people said that. In 1990, 3% of people said they had no close friends. In 2021, it was 12% said they had no close friends. I guess I've kind of got two questions for you. One, do you think that this is a, a shifting trend? Um, and then secondly, if this is a societal issue, um, I guess, what's the role of our work in doing this? Or, you know, why is this being addressed at work? Or is it just being addressed through work? Or do you think there are other things that we, we should be doing and thinking about to address this? So question one, mm. is it increasing? Question two, why is this falling on organizations to address this? I think um, the increased question is a really interesting one because there's a couple of parts to this. One is a reporting issue. Um, mm -hmm. Are people reporting it because they're being asked uh, versus it wasn't even on the agenda to talk about in terms of a well-being issue? And... Um, if there's increased awareness and increased reporting, it can look like, wow, people are more lonely now than they were before. But we also need to look at other factors in here. Um, when we talk about best friends and when we talk about um, connection, um, many people will have found in their own experience um, that the connections that they experience during the day are not satisfying them because they're virtual they are um, electronic messages. They are back-to-back uh, -back meetings done over video where they don't get an opportunity to engage in the small talk 
the chats, the social connection that we really benefit from. And, you know, there's so much evidence to show that social chats in the workplace are a powerful, positive thing rather than uh, putting a dent in our productivity. Um, they really help us build interpersonal trust, contribute to relationships. They can even lead people to feel that the, the, the meeting has been more productive when we begin with some of that human connection conversation. So I, I imagine that there are a whole bunch of factors coming together to raise individuals' awareness of this and to raise the awareness of the people who are asking the question to begin with. To come to the second bit about work, I mean, you and I, our professional focus is on the workplace. And that, that's obviously where uh, this is, because the experience of loneliness for people who are not at work, who don't work anymore, for example, is a very, very uh, serious problem. But in the workplace, I think one of the things that people find it hard to get their heads around is, well, hold on, we're in, you know, potentially a physical office all day, you're surrounded, you're talking to people, how could you feel lonely in the workplace? I'd take us back to lockdown. Um, as, a, as a great example of this, where people were having conversations all day. And in fact, many employers tried to help people's um, uh, new location of, of work and the feelings that come with that by having more social events online and, and bringing people together more. That doesn't really help many, many people, because it's not the volume of conversations we have in a given day. It's not the amount of people that we see in a given day. It's about our individual need for the depth of that relationship, the depth of that connection. And having 25 people on a Zoom call does not contribute to that. If you see them and you don't get to say anything, or even if you do get to say something, it's not the same as my needs are being met. Now, it will be for some people. This is not a universal experience. But I think the go-to, and it's a well-meaning go-to in many organizations, is let's organize more stuff where people get to see other people. Instead of the very simple thing of how, how can we organize work so, such that people have an opportunity to talk and connect rather than, as is so common now, let's um, give people's calendars over to everyone else where they can block books all of their time and not have an opportunity to, to connect as humans. Yeah, that's nice. Um, it, it really feels like there's, uh, there's something in here about quantity versus quality of relationships and, and that ability to form um, that connection. And, and again, you know, back to that Peter Fonga quote, he talks about being understood and I don't know that that's really the core of it. Um, something I was actually reading this morning, there's a piece in the New York Times talking about shifts in sort of approaches to um, DEI and, and the rise of the phrase belonging, um, which I think fits into this sphere as well and links to some of the well-being piece. So I, I think trying to create the space for that quality of experience is, is pretty good. Um, it's an important point because, um, you know, what we're often doing as humans is assessing our sense of fit in the group. Um, to what extent am I in the group or outside of the group? To what extent are my contributions being valued? How am I performing compared to other people? So comparison is a you know big part of what we do. Obviously not all helpful. Uh, you only have to look at social media um, to, to see the downside of that. But um, when we don't have the opportunity to talk these things through, to feel that people are listening to us or understanding our perspective when we don't get the time with a manager or a supervisor to discuss how we're doing and maybe even to discuss who we are as a person and what we want out of work and life more generally, 
then we will feel that sense of lack of connection, even though we could be surrounded by people. Yeah, it's, it's possible to be lonely in a crowded space if you don't feel that you belong or are validated or understood or have that connection. And yet, and it could be times, absolutely possible to spend many of your days in complete isolation and be very, very content with that and not have yeah. the negative outcomes that we've been discussing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I find sometimes is, um, as a, again, as a personal reflection, I, um, am prone to, uh, sort of slowly slipping towards a feeling of loneliness over multiple days without really realizing it happens. Um, and one of my favorite podcasters, a guy called Stephen West, who has a podcast called Philosophize This, talks about stewing in our own juices. And I can find myself, you know, as I separate from other people a little bit, if I shrink into something, I can, I can like sort of impose a little bit of that isolation and stew in my own juice and kind of not even really notice that I've lost some of that connection. And I can have a really small interaction with somebody. I can, you know, speak to somebody in a checkout in a supermarket and just have like a, a 30 second little incidental thing, a little incidental conversation while packing my bags. And that can reinvigorate and give me that little bit of a sense of connection. So so I, I think at different times and at different points of context, um, the, the sort of stimulus that recharges my sense of connection um, varies. Does that make sense in terms of a context? It makes sense and that it's a very familiar story. It's something that I've heard a lot from my own clients and you see reported in, in the research. And I think a surprising example maybe I'd like to share with you is um, loneliness in leaders because of the perceived lack of ability to discuss their their feelings, their worries, their thoughts. You know, I, I hear this all the time with really senior coaches that they have the power they have the respect they have the authority but they don't have an opportunity uh, a lot of them to say oh i just like to just you know chat with someone or talk about how i'm worried about this or how i'm feeling a little bit under pressure about this and um, the, the, the flip side of that is the fear of demonstrating vulnerability the pressure of maintaining um, a facade of uh, confidence and authority. And, and, you know, even though, and leaders normally are surrounded by other people all day, they can still feel this loneliness. And it's so often not described as loneliness. And I, I'd come back to the point about it being a little bit of a taboo topic. There's, I mean, I've had people describe it in, in, in so many different ways, but emptiness, um, yeah. uh, you know, and not having a best mate to talk things through with about work. And so, you know, to, to knock another one of these misunderstandings on the head, it's not about being alone. It's not about being disempowered because these are some of the most powerful people in the organization. It is about your own needs and your estimation of whether they're being met. And as you point out, they could be met in the moment by exchanging pleasantries with a neighbor. This is not about scheduling an afternoon of deep and meaningful you know, meaning of life conversation. It's what do I need? What would I like? And, and that's the, the angle we're taking with the guide. You know, the, there's three essential skills here. Figure out what matters to you the most. Uh, learn how to stop struggling with your worries about how it might all go wrong when you approach other people. And then take that committed action in the direction of what really matters to you. And it could be striking up a chat with someone at the till. Absolutely. Talking to a neighbor, asking um, a, a colleague, could they have their coffee break at the same time as you? 
over video. So you can just have that 15 minutes of how was your weekend? Yeah. And and I'll, I'll come back to those things in a little bit because there's a little bit of, for some people, bravery around doing that because we're taking a little risk and, and things like that. I guess as you were speaking, particularly about leaders, I, I had a sort of a reflection as you were speaking about it. So I just want to check it out and see if you've got any thoughts on it. Um, does our sort of sense of being with peers come into this? So, so when you're speaking about leaders, it feels like they feel like they're isolated from a, a peer perspective in the workplace often. We've got all that sort of conception of, of hierarchy and, and distance. And that makes me feel that if we live within that domain of framing within that social structure, if we feel peerless, that could feel lonely. Whereas when I'm in the supermarket speaking to a checkout person, I don't feel that we're not peers because the context that we're in sort of puts us in the same place in the supermarket at the same time. So maybe there's an ability to be closer where we strip out some of that sort of social status and hierarchy and are just people speaking to people. Does that make any sense where I'm going with that? It, it definitely does. The, the phrase that's jumping out in my mind is that notion of acknowledging our shared humanity. You know, if we could put that front and center, uh, a sense of compassion towards ourselves and other people, that means that we value connection with others. Um, we want connection with others, and it might be 30 seconds, it might be an hour, but we see it as important uh, to us and to others. And we lose sight of that so easily. Um, it's so easy to look for efficiency and the efficiency can unintentionally separate people. It's so easy to emphasize targets and lose sight of the impact it can have on people's sense of shared humanity, the un unintended consequences of some of this thinking. So my, my you know, really uh, loud call to organizational decision makers is not abandon um, efficiency and targets and you're there to do whatever you're there to do, but to acknowledge that we're humans and connection is really important to us. And it shouldn't, and it doesn't get in the way of those things. In fact, it can facilitate those things. Um, and it can be done in a variety of different ways. And in fact, the skills we're talking about are generalizable to so many things. You talked about bravery there. There's a, there's a thinking trap we can so easily fall into, which is when I feel more X, I'll do Y. When I feel more confident, I'll have that conversation. But of course, our confidence comes from doing. It doesn't magically arrive on us, you know, like pixie dust. So, you know, part of these skills are acknowledging, yep, it might go wrong. They might not want to talk to me. But what's more important, making connection with someone or avoiding all social risk ever. And this is one of the behavioral outcomes that we can find ourselves even more isolated because we emphasize the risks and the discomfort associated with reaching out to another human. And if we want to avoid that, well, then we will not have that connection. But if we place connection at the center and acknowledge that it could be uncomfortable, but we do it anyway, they're the first steps towards um, that connection and that sense of purpose and belonging that are really important to us. There's some some great stuff in there. Um, I'll sort of navigate back to, to that in just a second. We talked a little bit about stigma around this, and I just wanted to share something I thought was interesting in the stigma space, which is in the last two weeks, four weeks, something like that, here in the UK, the Church of England released a statement encouraging, as they say, people to be happy and fulfilled while being sing uh, single, and also recognizing that some people may choose to remain single for various reasons. I just, when we talk about 
stigma around potential indicators of, of loneliness. I don't know that being single necessarily correlates with loneliness. I would assume there's something there, but I've, I just thought it was a really interesting thing to come up now in a time where we're, we're talking about sort of stigmatization around um, around loneliness as well. So I think that was interesting. Have you got any sort of reflections on that before we come back to some of the other points? I, I'll be honest, I wasn't expecting a Church of England quote uh, to come <laughs> out today. Was I. <laughs> um, but as I pop my theological hat on, I mean, I think um, it, it points to a common misunderstanding that alone equals lonely. And for people who choose to live their lives that way, um, that there is fulfillment and happiness and meaning and purpose in that. I think the people who want more connection and don't get it, or the people that want a relationship and don't have one, that's a whole different, uh, you know, area. And and I think we can be very well-meaning, but unhelpful when we try and change that status for the people who are quite happy and fulfilled how they are. Um, and, and it sort of defaults to, well, you're not like me, so I'm going to try and make you like me. The default social view of what normal is, and in fact, if we look at this from a, a people-centered perspective, you know, the person, what does the person need? Not what do I need them to be in order for me to feel okay about them? It, it comes back to, you know, enforced social events in the workplace, believing that that will stamp out loneliness or, you know, someone who is um, reflective in nature being told to keep doing presentations until you get over your reflective nature. Um, People are how they are, and respecting that diversity of uh, needs, of personality, of drives, motivators, and values, it sounds like it's too complex to deal with. But in fact, we could start by listening um, about what people need from the workplace. That's our focus. And ensuring that we don't arrange our work or organize our people such that it favors some over others, and and it makes life more difficult uh, for for some of our employees. Yeah, thank you. I just I, I thought it was just an interesting thing, which is why I check it out there. Um, the the other things that I were thinking about before I asked that question were to do with some of the, the things you were speaking about about how we navigate through some of this ourselves. Um, mm. and I've got sort of one little personal story I'll share, which I think relates to this a little bit. Um, and, and then a bit of reference and, and then I guess some questions. Um, last week I went to a conference up here in Edinburgh uh, and I was a bit ill and I set off on the walk there with good intentions. Um, and by the time I'd gotten to there, I'd sort of gotten myself into one of these mind traps through which I didn't want to engage with the people there. I didn't want to be, you know, speaking to people. Um, and, and my mindset was, was all off. Um, I'm like, what am I doing here? These aren't my people. I don't want to do this, blah, 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 blah. And consequently, I didn't um, I didn't do the things that I, I wanted to do there. You know, I'd, I'd wanted to go and engage and speak to people. And I got myself into that sort of negative framing where I, where I felt like I didn't want to engage. And, and I couldn't really put my finger on specifically what it was that held me back from stepping into those interactions. But it was probably, a, a, you know, elements of fear, elements of feeling alone, all those types of things. What is it that you think holds people back or leads people into that sort of spiral whereby they they opt out of taking that initial step to, you know, to engage and connect? So the Connect and Thrive guide that we put together, we look at this experience through one specific um, conceptual lens, which is that that we call acceptance and commitment theory. 
or act. And this is um, a great way. It's an evidence-based uh, perspective that's used in, in everything from therapy, social work, education, and coaching. Um, and it's a great way of looking at this experience because it helps us understand why we do something that really could be unhelpful and we feel it's the right thing to do. So if we think about we possess a mind, um, in those situations, your mind is giving you messages that emphasize the risks, the downside, the discomfort, the danger, the social danger of not coming across the right way or the danger of rejection, you know, which is very powerful, the fear of failure at being social. And so it, it sort of says, look, that's, that's too risky. Why don't you just keep to yourself? That's nice and safe. And of course, what we get as soon as we decide I'm not going to reach out to other people is a sense of relief. Your mind gives you, ah, that's nice. But it's the same relief that we get when we procrastinate about an important task. It's momentary and it doesn't help us in the longer run. So what we're talking about is building up patterns of avoidant behavior because in the short term, they bring us relief from the discomfort that our mind is giving us. And if you think about it, the discomfort, the psychological discomfort is about a thing that hasn't even happened yet. So we're kind of predicting what's going to happen. And then we're taking thoughts that are intangible and we're letting our lives be ruled by them. The, the opposite is to acknowledge thoughts are thoughts, um, really focus on what's important to us, um, we take a values perspective here. So connection with others, being professional, being dependable, being compassionate, whatever the values are, and saying, I'm going to put that into action, despite the fact it could be uncomfortable, it may not go the way I want it to, but I'll be doing more of what I feel is the helpful thing to do, rather than moving away and getting some momentary respite from the discomfort. And that's what it all boils down to. Am I moving towards what's meaningful or am I moving away from temporary discomfort? Yeah, and, and, and that temporary relief is a great way to describe it because, you know, reflecting on, on my experience and, and the story I told, in the time I was there, I, I felt kind of okay not doing stuff. And then I left and I felt, oh, I wish I'd done the other thing. And, and you know, you talked about avoiding discomfort and, and there was very much that in there. Um, and with that was the, the sense that I don't really belong here. I'm not really part of this community. I don't really fit into this group. And that will all come to the surface and I will feel awkward and out of place if I do step into that engagement, um, which is which is interesting. I've, I've got one other statement and then I want to come back and, and explore what you've said a little bit more. Um, one, of the, one of the things I read out earlier that, that I think sort of compounds some of the things we're talking about here is that statement is that research has shown that loneliness can increase an individual's likelihood of scanning for social threats leading to these biases and, and reduction in sleep and hormones and all of this. So it seems like if we're feeling lonely already, it, it probably, you know, accelerates the firing of those sort of anxiety parts of our brain and, and makes us even more prone to think some of those hindering negative thoughts, as I demonstrated in the story that I said, making it even Absolutely. harder to step through that. Um, so Absolutely. it's that sort of negative spiral. Yeah, would you expand and, on that? Uh, well, yeah, and anxiety is um, a very unpleasant experience, but it's a very interesting phenomenon to look at because it can manifest in so many different ways. And it, it can come across to others in a way that they wouldn't label it anxiety. They might label it aggression um, or you know unhelpful behavior or just a difficult person. When in fact, for that individual, it's threat-centered thinking what could go wrong and not, you know, 
typical it's on a scale from one to ten it's just how much of a disaster could this be it's disaster catastrophic thinking and it's also exhausting because you are waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're waiting for the bad thing to happen. You might be engaging in some avoidant behaviors as well, but anything can then start to seem like a threat. And then imagine you receive an email and you think, well, they're critiquing me. And then you send a spiky email back. Now, what you've done as a result of that is put a dent in the quality of that relationship. Um, people will view you differently. And then you hear about that. And then you see, ah, you see, it is true. If you interact with these people, you get a negative uh, result. So, you know, with all of that, and, and that, of course, impairs our sleep, impairs our well-being more generally. These are complex networks of things that are going on. And what we're not saying in our guide is, you know, do this, and it is um, the way to overcome all anxiety. Absolutely not. But it's, it's Mental Health Awareness Week as we record this, and this year's focus is all about anxiety and one of the the things that i try and do when i talk about it is anxious thoughts and feelings um can arise in anybody and uh, the way that anxiety can manifest in our behavior is not always the stereotypical view that people have of anxiety which is maybe described as nervous or timid when in fact it can come across in lots and lots of different different ways but loneliness on an ongoing basis increases our chance of experiencing anxiety and depression. So it really is a mental health as well as physical health um, challenge. Yeah. I'm going to come back to the ACT stuff in a minute, but I read some stuff to do with, you know, sort of world happiness reports and bits and pieces. And, and we know the Scandi nations are often come out, you know, very high in that. And I, I didn't actually read the article, article I've got to say, but I, I read a headline to do with Finland and saying that a lot of the, well, the headline said that something like it's all to do with managing our expectations, right? If you've got reasonable expectations, then your happiness is better. One of my sort of postulations in this space, thinking about the own traps that my own traps that I fall into is that I think that to have a, you know, really strong connection with people, I need to have almost a, a perfect level of, connection with them and and i struggle to find that good enough space so so where do i find the space that's good enough for that to feel like a meaningful connection that alleviates that loneliness have you got thoughts mm -hmm. on the sort of overlap of that perfection seeking type of thing when it comes to loneliness so, yeah L let me return to the happiness thing for a moment because sure, that, yeah. that raises my hackles on a regular basis okay. i always find those yeah. those things very interesting to look at um they can lead us down to some very stereotypical ways of thinking about entire nations and um yeah you know nordic nations tend to do very well um or report to do very well on the, on these things i think if we look at loneliness and we look at happiness it's a it's a major barrier because happiness is viewed as a goal if i'm not feeling happy that's a bad thing when in fact if we take happy out of the equation and replace it with something like purpose meaning satisfaction these are things that we can maintain and change our behavior to retain. Happiness comes and goes. It's a volatile emotional experience. So um, this is a major barrier to people taking action because what they think they might do could put a dent in happiness. So I better not do that. Or talking about this could damage someone else's happiness. Definitely don't want to do that. And it gets us into this position of evaluating our experience 
of these things on a day or even a momentary basis rather than in the round. So this week I had some challenging conversations this week. I had some really amazing conversations. And this week, I think I made several faux pas. You know, how does that look in the round rather than um, I got critiqued, I'm a bad person. You know, I got some feedback. It's insurmountable. I never want to talk to that person again. It's so difficult. So um, looking at it in the round, looking at the, the higher order stuff, values, purpose, meaning, unlocks our capacity to do difficult things. If we focus on happiness, then we won't do anything that doesn't make us feel happy. And that really is quite limiting. How many things do we do each day that aren't pleasant in the moment, but they contribute to our happiness. They contribute to our purpose and meaning. They contribute to our well-being. I mean, I'm looking at my diary this morning and I've put the gym in for later. You know, I've already got thoughts about that. And trudging down to the gym is not going to spark joy within me. But I know that in the round and over time and after I've been to the gym, I know you have to have done something positive for my well-being. That's the way to look at this. Not every activity can, uh, or, you know, lead to immediate happiness. And of course, a lot of yeah. the things that do cause momentary happiness cause us problems in the longer run. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I love that framing about the the sort of bigger in the round thinking. And as you were describing that week of, I made a few faux pas, I had some wonderful conversations, I did some stuff that was all right. That's like, that's how I live most of my lives and or most of my lives most of my weeks and <laughs> yeah. i can focus on on any of those and and get drawn into them but remembering in the round is um is a really good thing to do um and your point about the gym really resonated with me i i've i've got sort of a sense that the things that i do when i'm happy aren't the things that make me happy and it's not quite right as a phrase but i know that mm -hmm. the things mm -hmm. that i do when i'm sometimes uh, slightly anxious or feeling like I ought to do something. They, they, those moments often lead me to take actions that lead to a better sense of commitment and uh, contentment in the future, like having been to the gym or like having reached out to somebody. So for me, it feels like a really meshy experience where those moments of perhaps not being at my happiest cause me to take the actions that rebalance me as this sort yes. of returning to my steady state. Um, that, that's a really good way of putting it, because if we're able to notice our thoughts and emotions, you know, not follow them as if they're uh, demands or instructions, but notice what our mind is giving us, we could then say, well, what's it trying to tell me? You know, instead of I, I got that interaction wrong, I must never speak to that person again. It's like, oh, I'm feeling a bit off about that. Is there a way that I could approach that topic differently next time? Uh, or even... How might it have been from their perspective? Can I imagine that? Or how might I feel about this in six months? Well, I won't remember it in six months. So um, there's a lot um, to the thinking about our own thinking rather than accepting whatever our mind gives us. I always say this to, to clients, you know, no more than you can count the number of thoughts you have each day, would you share with someone else every single thought that crosses your awareness because some of them are just so absolutely out of the world, we would never verbalize them. So why do we pay attention to some of them and treat them as absolute truths? And that's, that's about getting under the skin of this and separating ourselves from our minds. And all I mean by that is seeing the mind as a thing. I am not my thoughts, I have some thoughts. I am not my emotions, I have some emotions. What I do have control over is my behavior. So let me focus on cultivating habits and in the moment behaviors that more represent who I want to be 
rather than respond uh, at the mercy of some quite volatile emotions and random thoughts. Yeah. One of my senses for thoughts, and, and I'm just going to check it out before we move on a little bit, is that quite often my thoughts, and I think for other people too, this is probably the case, my thoughts are so fleeting and ill-formed that I perceive them as being a real thought, but they're not. They're almost just a, an aromatherapy of the thought. Do you know what I mean? Like an <laughs> essence of a thought. And and I latch onto that without it even being formed enough. I couldn't express mm. it. I just get the flavor of it. And that can be um, unhelpful and misleading, particularly if I think that I've been thinking in sentences and paragraphs when I've been thinking in you know, colors and, and emotions. And well, like that. This this is really important. What you've you've landed on there because I love that the aromatherapy um, bit. Because often the thing that we notice and pay attention to first is how we feel as a result of the thought. Um, and actually, one of the ways uh, that I work with some of my clients around these things is to get them to verbalize to themselves the thoughts or to write down the thoughts so they can then look at them as a thing and go, wow, my mind said that to me. Uh, it's very different when we externalize it and say, well, I don't, I don't need to act on that or, or that's, that, that is not born out of reality at all or that is not who I am. But if we leave it in our minds and we're wrestling with it or we're trying to suppress it or change it or somehow debate with our own minds, one, that takes a lot of time and energy. It takes us away from doing the things that are really good for us. And we're in a constant battle with something much stronger and more nimble than we are. So core to this is learning to let thoughts go. You know, we don't have to have an answer to every single thought we have. But the ones that keep coming back, the ones that annoy us, and they're sometimes about our identity, you know, I am, I am not, I can, I can't. One of the simple things that we can do, it's simple to describe, takes practice is to view them as stories that we've heard before and they've not helped us before to listen to the whole story so just as you would kind of roll your eyes at a relative telling you their story about their holiday for the umpteenth time you smile politely but don't pay attention and do something more useful um so getting distance from these things um me and it's does take practice, but it means that we're not responding to every threat-based alert the mind gives us about social interaction. We let it go. We accept it's going to happen. And we do more of the stuff that could ultimately lead to more uh, interpersonal connection. Um, I listened to a, a podcast that linked into the ACT um, acceptance and commitment therapy stuff, a podcast called The Messy Middle, with a guest called Jonah Oliver, who's a sports psychologist from Australia that somebody recommended. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So listening to him, he, he, he says, or my takeaway from some of the things I've, that um, he says in, in his stuff is that particularly with a lot of athletes, you'll get to these situations where you're in a moment and you need to take an action. He talks about professional golfers, you know, final three holes in the major, everything is like overstimulated and internally you're a roiling mess. And, and, and what, what he kind of talks about in there is that he thinks that it's great to have your personal values, as you've alluded to, some of those sort of underlying sense of who the me I want to be in that moment is so that we can acknowledge and accept all those kind of unhelpful things that go on in the moment and kind of push through it anyway um, is, is what I've taken away. Now, this could be me misperceiving it, but the phrase that he uses is something like these unhelpful thoughts and feelings are almost like the price of being involved, the, the ticket to the game, 
the, the thing that everybody experiences in these moments when we're doing something that we care about and are passionate about. And, and he, you know, he kind of says, if you tell somebody not to think about the bear, they'll think about the bear. So mm. managing our thoughts can sometimes be a difficult thing to do, but having a plan to, to act regardless of some of these things in a way that's true to who we want to be in those moments can help us, I guess, visualize and, and pre-commit to making some of those actions that are helpful for us. Um, that's right. What are your, that's what right. are your thoughts on that? Yeah. It, it, I, I, would, I would agree uh, with that 100%. This is about acceptance of discomfort or the risk of discomfort, acceptance that um, we won't always succeed, but acknowledging that moving in that direction of whatever is uh, valuable to us is, is the most important thing. So I, I, with my clients, I'll talk about the fact that they've got to where they are today by persevering through discomfort it seems impossible right now but they passed their exams they um, started a relationship they bought a home they you know all of these things come with masses of discomfort and for the most part discomfort about things that will never happen worries anxieties fomo fear of failure fear of rejection all this stuff but they kept going and why for we can always boil it down to because what they were working on or working towards was really important to them. So figuring out what's important to us in life, um, not comfort, not happiness, but the, the much more meaningful stuff, figuring that out gives us an anchor, um, gives us something that we can really rely on, and it gives us a direction to follow. So rather than being taken off that path by momentary blips of uh, unhappiness or worry, we keep going because we accept happiness and worry are part of being a human who does meaningful things. And it might be elite sport, but it could also be chatting to the new person in the office. It might be striking up a conversation um, with someone you meet in, in the hallway. It might be reaching out to someone you haven't spoken to for quite some time and, and going past all of the nightmarish scenarios your mind gives you about rejection. And being pleasantly surprised when they'd say, oh, I was just thinking about you. You know, it, it, it is about doing the stuff that brings us purpose and meaning. But we need to start with, well, what is important to me? Yeah, brilliant. Um, so I, I think we're kind of heading towards the end. I, I guess it would be good if I could just get you to sort of walk through a little bit um, two different things. We'll, we'll tackle them in different order. Firstly, I think it would be good to sort of step back and, and sort of think about it from an individual perspective. We are thinking that maybe we're a little bit lonely. We, we know we've got these thinking traps. We know we're emotional beings. We know we're socially connected. And, and we think that we might be a little bit lonely. You know, what's our, what's our sort of action plan to help us address some of that or, or take some control over it? What, what are like the two or three steps that you'd call out from that perspective? There's a really important point here, which is about labeling and how we refer to ourselves. So... I'm a lonely person, it's not particularly helpful. And it's also not true because this is something you're experiencing right now. And just like all of the other lights on the emotional dashboard, it'll stop flickering at some point. But I'm feeling this or my mind is giving me this. So what do I want to do about it? Um, so starting off with what's important to me in life? What do I want more of in my life? What's that? really uh, purpose and meaning stuff, whatever names you want to give to it. 
And how can I do the smallest thing, smallest behavior to move me towards that? So it, it could be just initiating a conversation. It could be organizing a social event. It could be speaking to your supervisor or your manager about not feeling like you're part of things or not getting feedback or not being part of the team. It's the next small action that you can take. While, as we've just discussed, acknowledging it's not about being perfect. It's not about getting it right every time. It's about step-by-step step moving towards more connection. And also not evaluating yourself or your interactions as pass-fail, but did I do the thing? It doesn't matter how well it worked out. I did the thing that was meaningful to me and I can do it again, rather than they didn't receive me with open arms. I'm an unlovable person. It's, I did it. Maybe they're having a bad day, but I did it and I can do it again. So we want to move away from all or nothing. We want to move away from personal reinvention. It's small things. Start with very, very small things. And if we keep a focus on what we're doing to move in the direction of what's valuable, we can view it in terms of steps and we can make little course corrections along the way rather than massive personal reinventions. A very simple thing, but a very challenging thing for us to do is to talk about it to think about someone that we trust, to think about someone close to us, and to start expressing our perspective on how we think things are. And that can be a really useful first step. We don't have to use the, 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 the word lonely. Um, we can just talk about connection or uh, chat time or however we want to put it, just so that we can express it and not stew in it, as you said earlier, you know, and just not be stuck in those thoughts. Uh, we, we set out a, a mechanism, um, Sarah and I, in, in the guide that we put together, just some simple uh, examples. And we've got a little um, case study of a person going through this at work and what they've tried and what they thought. And we think it brings it to life because it's so common and so simple. And, and all this person is doing, you no know, spoiler alert, is, is, you know, speaking up a little bit, reaching out a little bit, not experiencing success at every turn, but you know, moving towards what they think is important. And that's where we need to start. That's lovely. Um, one of the, the pieces of language I've heard used, not necessarily specifically in relation to this, but but in, in context, but I think it's helpful is around a series of experiments. And, you know, we, we can make some experiments. And even if a hypothesis isn't right, the experiment can be a success. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I love that phrase. You know, we try something new. And the trying it of itself and what we learn is a wonderful success. And, and that can can shift some of the, the, the challenges around this, I believe. Um, so, so that's a little bit as an individual. Uh, I'd just like you to, to recap a little bit from an organizational perspective. What, what are some things that you might say from, from a work perspective um, that we might be able to do to support here? If you've got supervisors, team leaders, managers listening to this, and I'm sure you have, I think the number one message I would have for them is don't use yourself as the benchmark. Don't believe that because you have enough connection, you have enough conversation. Maybe you feel you've got too much conversation and too much interpersonal uh, contact. That's not the same for the people that work for you on your team. And so to begin to imagine what their working day is like, and to initiate conversations, not how lonely are you on a scale of one to 10, but to ask people um, how, how part of things they feel, how much uh, contact they're getting that you know enables them to feel part of the team. Um, and to role model this to others, to role model 
social chats because often there's a fear-based avoidance of that. I, I need to look like I'm working the whole time. But actually, take time to have the 90-second chat with people and encourage others to do the same. And that can really open up the whole thing and make it easier for people to have these conversations. Fabulous. Thank you. Okay. Um, I think we're, we're pretty much out of time. Uh, it would be great just to, uh, before we finish, if you could share again where people can um, find the online resources that you've got. And I think you've got a webinar um, in a, about two weeks from when we're recording and we'll, we'll try and get this released mm -hmm. before then. Could you share a little bit about that too? Well, that, that's fantastic. Yes. So w all the digital resources we've put on our page on the website, worklifesite.com slash connect and thrive. In addition to the, the, the downloadable guide, which is there, and, and we, we did this intentionally. There's no sign up. There's no cost. There's no harvesting of data. We want to, this front and center, make it really easy for people to get. So that's on the page. Um, digital resources that support your understanding of ACT um, in the form of articles and podcast episodes, they're linked there as well, as well as a bunch of international resources um, for organizations that are exploring social connection, loneliness, and, and that. And, and I would appeal to your international audience to get in touch with us if they would like to add something to that page, because one, it's very Anglo-centric. <laughs> Um, so what about other countries? What are you doing? We, we put a link to that there. We'd be really happy to do so. The webinar, uh, if you haven't heard enough of my voice today, the webinar is on May 30th um, and uh, sign up for that. It's free. Sign up for that is on the same page, Connect and Thrive. And what I'll be doing is outlining um, a brief summary of the research to, to put it in context, to talk about the benefits of the activities that I've been outlining uh, today, but in, in a more uh, educational way. Here is the process. Here's how you can do it. And um, uh, offer to organizations, here's how we can help do more of this in a strategic way, not just person by person. Uh, and that's May 30th. Um, and the, uh, the sign up is on that page. Wonderful. Well, I think that's excellent. So it's just time to say thank you very much for me. So thank you. Thank you so much for um, the time and the opportunity to talk about it. It's been great.